Once again, let's open our copies of God's Word to the uh, epistle of Paul to the Romans, Romans chapter number 3. This is a uh, continuation of a sermon that I started last Communion Sunday, and uh, we uh, uh, I only got as far as uh, the doctrine of justification, and Pastor Russ, uh, just in the uh, in the teaching hour, just taught on the doctrine of justification. And so a month ago, I taught on the doctrine of justification. A few moments ago, Pastor Russ taught on the doctrine of justification. We'll touch it again this morning. And uh, along with some other truths, but uh, I don't think that uh, there's any coincidence in that. I believe God uh, orders things and uh, we didn't plan it this way, but it uh, uh, turned out this way. And we're not in a preaching competition anyway, so uh, don't get that idea. But I want us to uh, look again at this passage of scripture. I want to pray and then I'm going to uh, read the scripture one more time. Now, Father, I, I come to you again in the name of Jesus, confessing how needy I truly am. I can read the words off the page and I can make a few comments through the physical strength you give, but to say or teach or preach anything that will have eternal value, I can't, I can't do it. I don't have it. Only you can do that. Only you can put power in the words. Only you can pierce hearts. Only you can expose sin for what it is and cause the sinner to see himself or herself as lost and guilty before you. Only you can convict and draw and work repentance and faith in those hearts. And so we come to you trusting in you, resting in your power. And in your authority, use your word today to speak to your people and call your people to yourself. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, let's read this wonderful scripture again. This, this is just, as uh, uh, Brother Russ said this morning, it, uh, it, it's just wonderful stuff. It's, it, it's glorious truth. But in verse number 21, the apostle is writing and said, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Get that? This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He'd passed over former sins. How did He do that? He, he, uh, he granted Abraham righteousness by faith didn't he and uh, there was jesus hadn't died for sins and there was no effective sacrifice that could ever put away sins this happened even before the law and even the law the sacrifices offered by the law could not put away sins and so uh you know there's this uh uh, there, there's these sins. And God says, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take care of it. And he gave his son to take those sins, the sins from the past, the sins uh, of the present, the sins of the future of his people. And he propitiated those sins. He became the propitiation for those sins. God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the, the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God did all this to show that he is exercising justice. He's dealing with those sins. How did he do that? In Jesus. He punished Jesus for sin. Then, verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by the faith, by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say uh, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, the title of our message this morning is Remembering Jesus. Remembering Jesus, how thoroughly he saves. And we find some precious truths in these passages, these passages of Scripture that we read, uh, these verses, uh, some uh, wonderful words, doctrines that we need to think about. And uh, when we are meeting on a Sunday like this to uh, participate in the Lord's table, uh, we're commanded to do so in remembrance of Him. And so that's what uh, I want to emphasize this morning is the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we're necessarily driven back to the gospel when we talk about this. When we think about the goodness of God in his mercy toward us, when we think about how that he gave his son for our sins, we are, uh, uh, we're, filled with the joy of having received good news, right? It's good news. The gospel is good news. But the good news is, doesn't appear good. It doesn't seem as good until we know what the bad news is. And for the first three chapters, as we said last week, I'm just going to touch on this, but the first three chapters... Uh, or the first two and a half chapters, at least, of this epistle, uh, Paul takes care to make sure everyone knows what sin is and who is guilty of sin. In chapter number one, he says that the uh, heathen are guilty and without excuse. In chapter number two, uh, verses 1 through 17, he shows us that the hypocrites are guilty and have no excuse. They are those who uh, know enough about sin and righteousness to point the finger at other people while yet they are guilty themselves. And then from uh, chapter verse 17 on uh, into the first part of chapter number 3, he talks about how the, the Hebrews are guilty before God because having the law, they have not obeyed the law. And so then he sums it all up in the verses just before our text when he says uh, that uh, in verse number 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Just as Pastor Russ told us this morning, if you are going to try to justify yourself by the law, you're going to be shown to be a sinner. Because that's what the law does. It exposes our sin. But then in uh, uh, the next verse, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Here it is. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. And the good news is that God justifies sinners. God has a plan, a righteous plan, to justify ungodly sinners. Now, I won't talk any more about justification because it's already been uh, uh, very clearly uh, taught to us this morning, although I will uh, read this short definition of justification by Dr. Warren Wearsby, and uh, it's one of the best I've ever come across. He says, justification is an act, not a process. I think Brother Russ made that very clear this morning. There are no degrees of justification. Each believer has the same right standing before God. Also, justification is something that God does, not man. No sinner can justify himself before God. Think on that. Chew on that. No sinner can. He has not the ability. No sinner can justify himself before God. Most important, justification does not mean that God makes us righteous, but that he declares us righteous. Justification is a legal matter. God puts the righteousness of Christ on our record in place of our own sinfulness, and no one can change the record. I really love that. So, justification. That's the first of the words that we want wanted to look at, and we have looked at it in uh, pretty much depth. And so then there's another word that we find in verse number 24, and that is the word redemption. We're talking about how thoroughly Christ saves, how thoroughly he saves. And each one of these doctrines that we'll talk about, they overlap. Because, and there's no, you can't hold them up and see any daylight between them because these are all part of what Jesus did for us. And this is part of what we need to be remembering when we remember our Savior uh, this morning. Redemption. Redemption is a uh, word that uh, the Greek uh, lutro means to bring forth a ransom. Talks about going, uh, uh, going to, uh, to the marketplace to redeem something by paying a ransom. And uh, then there is a, another form of it, and there are several forms of it used in the New Testament, but apolutrosis is uh, uh, the word that we're using here, and it means freeing from captivity by paying a ransom. Freeing from captivity by paying a ransom. So redemption 
has the implication that someone is enslaved. Someone is in captivity. And that is everyone outside of Christ. You say, uh, well, how can you say that we are in captivity? How can you say that we are enslaved? The, uh, the fact that uh, the Bible tells us that those who obey sin are the captives of sin. They're the servants of sin. We all, the lost, are enslaved by sin. Sin governs every choice that we make. The fall when Adam and Eve fell in sin in the Garden of Eden and plunged their whole uh, uh, descendants into sin by that one act. When that sin took place, that fall was so devastating and so cataclysmic, not only on the earth, but on us on humanity that we are fallen in our minds, we're fallen in our spirits, we're fallen in our soul, we're fallen in our flesh. There is nothing good in us whatsoever. Paul said there is none good, no, not one. And so that means that every choice that we make, although we are free to choose, we cannot choose apart from our predisposed sinfulness, our wickedness. You know, the uh, people like to talk a lot about the freedom of the will. And people will, de uh, uh, will actually get angry enough to fight you as they defend their uh, idea of the freedom of the human will. But let me say to you that your will is in bondage to sin. You only choose what your heart wants. Just think of Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just think of that day after they sinned and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And apparently that had been a time of fellowship with God and worship. A good time of uh, rejoicing in the Lord. Uh, that was their time with God. But this day, after they had sinned and they hear the voice of God walking in the garden... They have a choice to make, don't they? These are the very first human beings. They've got a choice. Here's their chance to exercise their free will and run to God and say, Oh God, we're sorry. But you know what their choice was, don't you? They didn't run to God. They ran from God. They ran from God. They hid themselves among the trees of the garden. And if God had not chosen to seek them, they would not have sought him. So it's God's will that saves us, not our free will. The implication of this word redemption 
is that we are enslaved and we are enslaved to sin. And even when one tries to do good outside of uh, being saved without trusting Christ as their Savior, and you try to do good deeds to try to uh, uh, market yourself a little bit better when the day of judgment comes, you know what happens there? You'd stand before God and you would have to say, I rejected Jesus to establish my own righteousness. How do you think that's going to fly? <laughs> With the one who gave his son for you. You're trampling the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ under your feet. And so this redemption, someone has to pay to release us from the bondage of sin. Now, some people have the idea that, uh, that it's the devil that demanded the payment. I've heard, uh, I heard a preacher preaching one time, and he told the story of a, uh, of a uh, little boy that was walking along, and, and he had some birds in a bird cage, and he asked the little boy, uh, the man asked, uh, met the little boy and asked him, uh, what are you going to do with those birds? He said, I'm going to play with them for a little while, and then I'm going to kill them. He said, that's the way the devil is. He just want to play with us a little while, and then he's going to kill us. And the man said, well, I don't want you to do that. Uh, what would you take for him? <coughs> and the man and the little boy said, it'll cost your blood. That was his illustration. So the little boy represents the devil and what the devil is going to do. And the devil demands the blood of that man. That's not the way it is. It was God who demands the blood. It was God who said in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse number 11. It's the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your soul. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. God is the one who demands blood. And so our bondage to sin and to Satan is, uh, uh, has to be released. We have to be, have a ransom paid. But who paid the ransom? And who demanded that pay? payment it was God and Jesus paid the ransom and it's uh, the uh, illustration the proper scriptural illustration is the uh, uh, children of Israel the people of Israel back in Egyptian bondage and God had already visited Egypt with Nine plagues, and now the tenth plague is going to be visited upon the people of Egypt. And God said, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And so God told Moses, he said, take a lamb on the tenth day of the month and put it up until the fourteenth day. And on the 14th day of the month at evening, you were to slay that lamb and drain its blood into a basin. 
and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the lintel in the side post of your door. And he said, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt tonight. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The children of Israel in their houses, they weren't looking at the blood. They were in there enjoying a meal. He said, you are to uh, prepare that lamb to eat for your family. Uh, and you're to eat that flesh during that uh, uh, night. And he said, you're to eat it with your clothes on, with your cloak on, with your shoes on your feet. Because I am going to redeem you. Tonight, I'm going to bring you out of bondage. And so, I thought that I thought it was pretty cool that everybody that went out of Egypt that night had some of the lamb in them. <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool, although the song probably had not been written back then, but it could have been. As they marched out of Egypt, they could have sung, there's power, power, wonder-working power. In the precious blood of the Lamb. This is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Slaves to sin. Headed for eternal destruction. And Jesus enters the slave market. Pays the price. But he doesn't just, he doesn't just pay the price. He sets us free. He takes us out of the slavery that we were in. Then there's another passage or another doctrine here that we want to talk about. And I think I passed up some of my notes. I get it. I get it. Oh yeah, there's the next one. Propitiation. And again, Pastor Russ has already talked about that uh, to a great extent this morning. But uh, look at verse number 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, there's that uh, blood again. To be received by faith. What does propitiation mean? Well, the word uh, that's translated propitiation here is helisterion. And it actually means mercy seat. Isn't that amazing? It's the mercy seat. Do you know what the mercy seat was in the Old Covenant? In the Old Testament? In the temple? In the tabernacle? The mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was the place where there were cherubims. One on each side looking down toward uh, the seat. And it was overlaid with cold, uh, gold, excuse me, and the glory of God came down and dwelt between the cherubims when God was with the people. God met with his people there. And one day a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, you can read about it in uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement the high priest would make an offering for himself and, uh, and then make an offering for the people. He would uh, uh, confess the sins of Israel on the head of the scapegoat, drive it out into an uninhabited place, and then they would offer the other one as an offering. 
and the blood of that goat would be sprinkled in the Holy of Holies and it would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Well, what's the uh, implication there? Inside the Ark of the Covenant that was below the mercy seat, there was a pot of manna. There was Aaron's rod that budded, but there was something else. There were the tablets of the law. And every time God looked down, he saw that law that pronounced Israel guilty before God. But on the Day of Atonement, when that blood was sprinkled, he looked over and saw the blood, and he didn't look any further. This, this is the Old Testament picture. Propitiation means that, uh, uh, that God has made peace with his people through the blood of Jesus Christ. He has, uh, propitiation means that the uh, uh, wrath of God has been turned away from us. And it was Jesus who did that. He not only uh, uh, propitiated God to us, he not only reconciled God to us and uh, took the uh, uh, wrath that was against us and absorbed it into his own body and took every ounce of our wrath, but he also he also is the propitiation. And when you uh, think about what's going on in heaven right now, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, died on the cross, was buried, rose again the third day, and then 40 days later, He ascended and entered the Holy of Holies, not made with hands, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and now the Father does not have to look anywhere for the blood. He looks over to his Son and sees the wounds of Calvary, and the victim of the uh, wrath of God is seated right there, and he sees us in Christ. His righteous wrath would be kindled if he looked at our sin, but he looks at the one who has paid for our sins. <coughs> and then I'll just, I'm about out of time, but then there's the Imputation. You say, well, I don't see imputation there. You might not, but if you'll look at these uh, verses in chapter 4, for example, verse number uh, 3, we find that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's imputation. 
counted means uh, it, it means imputed. Imputed means counted. It's an, an accounting term, as Pastor Russ has already said. It's an accounting term that uh, means that something has been added to an account. And when Abraham believed God, the Bible says that it was accounted to him or counted to him, imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham was not necessarily righteous, but when he said, when he believed God, God said, I'm going to account that as righteousness. And so, uh, uh, the, another word that you'll find in the King James Bible that means the same thing is the word reckoning. And reckoning uh, theologically refers to the fact that the righteous record of Christ has been put to the believer's account. The other side to this is that our sinful record has been put to Christ's account. He received what we all deserve in the wrath that was poured out on him that was ours, it should have been ours, he received what we all deserve for our account and we receive what only he deserves for his account. He was hated, accused, betrayed, humiliated, spit upon, cursed, beaten, disgraced, crucified, nailed, flogged, pierced, but all of that was God by the hands of sinners, punishing our sin. God showed both the consequences of sin and his love for sinners. And so now, we can say, in Jesus my sins have been punished. This is how he became our <coughs> propitiation. The holy eternal wrath of Almighty God was exhausted on him. He took it all for us and as us. There remains no more wrath for his own. At the same time, we have been given his perfect record of sinlessness. His complete life of absolute obedience to every jot and tittle of the law has been imputed to us, to our account, and God considers it our record of obedience. He saved us from our sins, but listen, I, I, can, I, can I give you just a little bit more? There, he also saved us from our righteousness. He said, well, I, you know, doesn't look to me like we need to be saved from our righteousness, but, uh, but our righteousness, our righteousness outside of Christ is revolting to God. As a matter of fact, he said in Isaiah 64, uh, and uh, was it verse number six, he said, all our, or he said, we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In his sight. 
Philippians chapter 3, Paul was talking about how that uh, he had all this, uh, he, he had a great religious pedigree, didn't he? He had a lot of things to commend himself. And if he were going to uh, go on his own efforts for justification, he had a lot to say, but he realized that it wouldn't justify him before God. And so he said, I counted all that as dumb. You get that? That's how revolting our own righteousness is. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 through 14, you read about a man who was a Pharisee and there was a tax collector. And the tax collector was one of the most hated people around, as you might imagine. But the Pharisee was praying with himself. This is the language scripture uses. Prayed with himself. I'm glad I'm not like other men. Or even as this tax collector. He's boasting in his own righteousness. And Jesus said that that poor old tax collector would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven. But smote his chest and said, God be merciful to me a sinner. And he, these, this is what Jesus said, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. Your righteousness will send you to hell. Your good works will send you to eternal torment. You must, you must fall before the cross of Christ. You must receive that gift of propitiation. That gift of righteousness. It'll be God's righteousness. Not your righteousness. And that's the only thing he'll accept anyway. Lord we thank you for your word. I know my words have been scattered and possibly even unintelligible, but I, I ask you, Lord, to take the truths that uh, have come from your scripture and, and order them in people's thoughts and minds and cause us, Lord, cause us to rejoice in our Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for how thoroughly you save us. Amen.